Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Our topic on Looking Forward today is the world of sports. That's an expansive topic, I know, and we're fortunate to have a great guest here to discuss it. She is Christine Brennan. Christine is an award-winning national sports columnist for USA Today, a commentator for CNN, ABC News, PBS NewsHour, and National Public Radio, a best-selling author, and a nationally known speaker. Name one of the country's top 10 sports columnists by the Associated Press Sports Editors three times. She has covered the last 18 Olympic Games, summer and winter. In March 2020, Christine was named the winner of the prestigious Red Smith Award, presented annually to a person who has made, quote, major contributions to sports journalism, end quote. Christine Brennan was the first woman sports writer at the Miami Herald in 1981 and the first woman to cover Washington's NFL team as a staff writer at the Washington Post in 1985. She was the first president of the American Association for Women in Sports Media and started an internship scholarship program that has supported 175 female students over the past two decades. Brennan is the author of seven books. Her 2006 sports memoir, Best Seat in the House, is the only father-daughter memoir written by a sports journalist. Her 1996 national bestseller, Inside Edge, was named one of the top 100 sports books of all time by Sports Illustrated. Christine is a member of several halls of fame, including the Ohio Women's Hall of Fame, and the Washington, D.C. Sports Hall of Fame. Hi, Christine. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hey, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Christine, I know that you're a graduate of Northwestern's prestigious School of Journalism. I went to Temple, and we knew that the people at Northwestern were going to a very good school, too. I was in communications as well. Please tell everybody, when did you first get interested in sports, what got you into that? For me, it was my uncle, but I'm wondering what got you into it. And when did you decide that you wanted to make sports writing and sports your career? Well, Jeff, I grew up at a time when girls were not encouraged to love or play sports. It was uh, in the 60s and the early 70s before Richard Nixon signed Title IX in June of 72. And uh, I was very lucky. I had my own personal Title IX. I had my dad. <laughs> I'm the oldest of four kids growing up in Toledo, Ohio, and then I moved to a suburb of Toledo, Ottawa Hills. And my father, I'm tall. I'm almost six feet tall. Why and I was, I'm very athletic and always was. And I wanted to play sports. And my dad said, sure, I'll play with you. So he taught me how to throw the baseball properly, cocking my arm behind my ear and throwing it uh, full motion. I never threw like a girl, although I certainly hope we can get rid of that term because we are teaching, of course, millions and millions of girls in this country to throw the ball properly. Uh, so throw yes. basically is now a compliment. But <laughs> you know, what, a, what a ridiculous, uh, what a ridiculous and sexist uh, term that that has been over the years. Yes, yes. 
but but good news is for me, I, I never did. My dad was, again, very, very supportive, as my mom was, of playing baseball with me and my love of sports. And the boys always picked me first to play <laughs> sports. And again, there's no there's no uh, kids soccer at this point. There's no, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old T-ball, nothing like that. So it's right. all playing in the yard and playing in the fields and, you know, in, in the backyard or whatever. So it was great. It was fun. It was certainly different from now. And uh, my father had been a football player in high school and college at Hyde Park High School in Chicago and then Drake University for Drake. a football scholarship sure, sure. And in the Army at the end of World War II. And so okay. he was a football player. He loved football. So we had season tickets to the University of Toledo Rockets football, which was just basically across the street, the campus. Neat. We would, um, uh, 1969, my dad took three little kids up to what many consider the game of the century, one of the greatest upsets in the history of college football, Michigan, Ohio State, 1969. Michigan, of course, beat Ohio State. That was rookie coach Bo Schembechler. Oh, yeah. Mentor Woody Hayes and witnessed one of, one of the greatest games ever. And I've t- written about it, talked about it, HBO special on that that I'm a part of, honored to be. Um, so that was huge. And we had Michigan season tickets. So we do Michigan games in the afternoon, University of Toledo at night, doubleheaders, college football. And then, of course, I'm playing uh, sports. And then in high school, I couldn't really play on an organized team until freshman year of high school. But I then played, I was a six-sport athlete, tennis in, wow. in the fall, volleyball and basketball in the winter, and softball and track and field in the spring. Every year, but I did, I certainly did all six sports over the course of uh, several times, you know, every, every uh, a year I did all of them. Other times I did some of those. Sure. And of course, you could do that because no one cared about girls sports. Right. No one was specializing in girls sports. You know, there was no sense really you'd get a college scholarship for it. So while it sounds great, and I was a, I was okay, I was decent, I was whatever, I love sports and I was pretty good at it. Not fabulous, not great, not off the charts. But saying I'm a six-sport athlete, um, you know, girls today would never be allowed to do that, you know, because they specialize and because we care so much more about girls' sports now and, of course, boys as well. Anyway, I loved reading the newspaper every day. I couldn't wait till the Toledo Blade showed up at our doorstep. That was, of course, about reading about sports. This is before the Internet, before ESPN. Uh, Basically, you never saw any highlights of anything. So I was reading like crazy. I kept a diary from age 10 on every single day. So I had the love of writing, the love of reading, the love of sports, put it all together. Uh, I thought really I'd be a political reporter um, because Mm. I never saw a woman doing this, never read a woman's sports byline. And I learned the value of having, as Billie Jean King says, to uh, you have to see it to be it of the value of, of, of role models. And I never really had a woman role model in sports journalism uh, until I got to Northwestern. And uh, the first day, first week on, on campus, I walked into the Daily Northwestern and the sports editor of the Daily Northwestern was a woman. Wow. Helene still at the LA Times, um, great, great journalist, Hall of Fame journalist. And um, I all of a sudden, wow, a, a woman can write sports because I really didn't know that uh, until, until that time. Yeah. There were women out there writing sports, Jeff, uh, Leslie Visser and Lori Mifflin and Robin Herman among others, but I didn't know them because there's no internet. And obviously I'm not really seeing their work, but they were out there or within a year or two, you know, they were right around that time. And um, so, yeah, so then I thought maybe I could do this. And I had summer internships, which of course, for those young people listening, students, uh, internships are the key. You must, must, must get summer internships if you want to get a job in journalism or many other places as well, other careers, but definitely journalism. 
uh, during your college summers and uh, must do your best to try to get them anyway. These are tough economic times. And I had four internships during my um, time at Northern and then um, started my career at the Miami Herald and then Washington Post and USA Today, CNN, ABC, et cetera. So I'm very fortunate to follow my dreams, the things I love the most, sports and writing, putting it together with now some TV and talking about it as well. And that has been my entire, the life of my dreams, the adventure absolutely of a lifetime. I think it's a very exciting summary that you just gave us. And there are many things I could say, but in the interest of time, I just want to say one thing. What you reinforce is the importance of a parent in a child's life. Exactly. In this case, your dad's getting you involved, supporting, encouraging you in sports. Not that your mother didn't, but your dad was probably the lead figure in my life. It was my uncle uh, who was passionate about sports and same thing. So anyway, Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. Let me ask you this question. And again, for you to distill this into a few minutes is not going to be easy, given your background and, and your experience, Christine. Looking forward, we tend to look forward. That's why it's called that. But we also look backwards first. So if you go back to the time when you started at the Miami Herald, it was like 1981, correct? That is correct. Yes. And I hate to say that, Christine, because time flies. It's almost 40 years ago. It is. No, that's okay. Anyone can look up, you know, and there's no worries. No, no, no concern about that. Thanks. And the best thing is you're still passionate about it. That's what makes it so wonderful. You found something you loved and you could do well. So what are some of the big changes over the decades that you've seen in sports, you alluded to obviously women's sports. You could talk about that again, but I know there've been other changes. So what, what have you witnessed in your career over the years? Again, distilling it, there's a lot you could talk about. <laughs> right, oh, absolutely. But it's my pleasure, Jeff, to, to try to distill it. And, you know, I would say that certainly technology, you know, uh, the days of writing a story and waiting for it to hit your doorstep and knowing that it was, or in newsstands, um, and knowing that I had a big scoop at the Miami Herald or the Washington Post, but you could kind of picture, you know, the paper being delivered in Bethesda and Washington, D.C. and Anacostia and, and Reston and Arlington and McLean, you know, and that would be kind of the, the satisfaction of having that scoop. It, it was great, but now it's instantaneous. You know, you've got a scoop, you've got a big breaking story and you have a link and you just put it out on Twitter and it just explodes. And for me, the, the biggest story I, I probably that I've ever broken was just this March during the pandemic when I was able to break the news that the Olympics were going to be postponed, the Tokyo Olympics. I got that story about 16 hours before it was actually uh, announced by the International Committee. And, and that's because of being around a long time and knowing people. And it was Richard Pound, Dick Pound, the IOC member from Canada who told me on the record that it was going to happen. And, and he was right, of course, and it happened. And so I broke that story and I could watch that happen, Jeff, in real time. I could just watch the Twitter just explode and and hundreds of people up to you know thousands, I think several thousands retweeting my my breaking news that the Olympics were going to be postponed. And that just felt fabulous. That felt that's what you live for as a journalist. And so certainly technology, the ability to to uh, break news and get things out there quickly uh, or a idea, even an idea or a thought, put it out there on Twitter. Obviously, the negative about Twitter and other things in social media, but especially Twitter, is the it's a cesspool. The hatred, the mm-hmm. the, the sexism, it's it's grotesque. Every young journalist not to not to go in and read their mentions. Don't do it, especially if you're covering the 
like the college football team for your college paper and there's passion and people see your stories online, let your mom or your dad or your brother, your sister, your roommate, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, go in and get, you know, get rid of all those people who are, are awful and, and, you know, just such, such terrible people. I, and, and with the political climate in this country, you know, you see a lot of the same people who hate women sports journalists who might like a certain political candidate who, you know, we'll see what happens in a few weeks, but yes. uh, you know, you see the parallel there, which is just appalling. And for those who support that candidate, uh, you can guess who it is. And, yeah. but that, but the sexism, the racism is there. And so I really worry that we're all these young 18 to 22 year olds who I, I mentor or help or talk to in colleges, Northwestern, Maryland, other places around the country. I tell them, don't look at those mentions because I don't want to lose you from journalism because it's so difficult. And it can be so withering and so hard to, to accept that onslaught of hatred and um, an awful comments that, that for, for me, it's fine. I mean, I've been doing this for years. No problem. Bring it on. You know, you right. don't come and they're done. <laughs> but yeah. for young journalists, I don't want to lose those young journalists uh, even before they've started. And that's, that's a concern. So that's certainly one big thing. Um, obviously we cover sports more and I, I love doing this as culture, as stories, as real news. Um, you know, the old days you heard about Babe Ruth, would be running through the train chasing a woman or and or and he's half naked and she's half naked or she's chasing him. And you know, these are kind of the stories that you assume are true, but who knows? And the sports writers, all men, all white men, looking up from their card game and going, Oh, hey. Well, now of course they pull out their phones, take pictures, and Babe Ruth would his reputation would be ruined within a few minutes. Maybe to some people that sounds terrible. Other people, maybe the truth would have been good to find out about what was going on. And maybe there's a happy medium. Now, of course, the coverage of sports is we do not accept Ray Rice punching his his fiance in an elevator. Thank God. We do not accept sexual abuse of our of gymnasts and figure skaters. Thank God. And these are things that have been overlooked for generations or ignored or whatever. And um, uh, abuse, um, verbal abuse, physical abuse of people. Um, rape, you know, whatever these might, things of, of athletes, and, and by the way, men, but also female athletes, male and female. Certainly, the bad things can, can happen to both genders, for sure. Now there's coverage of this. Now it's out in the open. Now there are reporters. Now there's a real premium placed on being a great reporter and going in and diving in and digging in out these stories, as I've been able to do with the Olympic uh, figure skating, uh, sex abuse, and all the terrible things that we found uh, that people have come to me and told me. And and we want to report it. We care about this. We're there for these people to tell us these stories and report these stories. There's no sugarcoating sports. Um, we are we are real journalists covering real stories, which can be games, but also can be these very important stories. Steroids in sports. Ben Johnson. You know, I was there in Seoul at the finish line in pro covering the men's hundred meters in 1988 in Seoul, 32 years ago, and of course. Ben Johnson won the gold medal, and then three days later, stripped of his, of the gold medal and given to Carl Lewis. And we were off and running on the steroids era in sports. East German women swimmers and the Soviets cheated for years. Other East German athletes, sadly, did too. That was in the 70s, certainly in the 80s, but then 88 was that big one with, with Ben Johnson. Another big, big story in baseball, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, which turned out to be, we all love that story until we realized it was such a fraud. Yes. Cheaters that they were, and, and, and I guess Lance Armstrong too, Christine. Lance. Yeah, oh yes. Well, you know, I've written many a column on Lance Armstrong. Yes, uh, he needs yeah. to stay away. He is, he is uh, the single greatest or worst, I guess I would say, uh, cheater in sports history. I mean, he's right up there. 
I think, in culture with Richard Nixon in terms of just lying and cheating awfulness because he, he transcends sports to go into the cancer community and the, the fraud that he perpetrated on everyone. So Marion Jones obviously did it also and was it was terrible. So anyway, all these stories are big stories. Um, I love sports. I love the thrill of sports. I love the great moment in sports on the field of play. But as a journalist, I also absolutely will cover all of these stories. Christine, again, that was excellent. Does any of what you've talked about in any way jade your thinking about sports? You know, when you were growing up, we don't think about these things. And they, as you were pointing out, a lot of that stuff wasn't even being covered anyway. You're kind of seeing the dirt. You said the cesspool with Twitter, but you're seeing a lot of the, you know, the ugly side. Has that jaded your feelings about, about sports in any way? No, no, not at all. I've described it this way, Jeff. I, I can be at the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, which I'm lucky enough to cover 18 in a row, winter and summer, all the way from LA in 84, all the way through Pyeongchang and South Korea in 18, and and um, planning to be in Tokyo in 2021, and hopefully that will happen, and Beijing for the Winter Olympics in 2022, just six months later. Anyway, I could be sitting at the opening ceremonies in press row, writing a column, criticizing the International Olympic Committee, and sometimes uh, in no uncertain terms, um, criticizing them for never having a moment of silence for the 11 uh, Israeli athletes and coaches killed during the massacre in Munich, uh, September 5th and 6th of 1972, criticizing them for all kinds of things, criticizing them for the countries that they choose, having the Olympics in China with the terrible human rights record of China. I could be sitting at the opening ceremonies writing that column and have tears in my eyes as I watch the Olympic flag be put up and on, on the flagpole and the, and the Olympic hymn playing and the, uh, the choir singing the Olympic hymn and the, the uh, Olympic torch coming in and, and lighting the cauldron. So I don't, I'm not crying my eyes out, but I can have a you know, feel like, you know, because I love that. And I can, I can really feel that, you know, that sense of, wow, this is such a, a moment it's when the world comes together. I, I do believe in that. I think the Olympics are, can be a great thing for so many people, winners of medals, but also for just bringing people together and the spirit of competing and, and taking part. And so, yes, I can have a, you know, a little moment of like, oh, you know, and you just feel uh, great about it. And you might have a little um, welling of your in your eyes. And then I can also continue right on at my laptop where I'm sitting, writing a column, being critical of the International Olympic Committee. I do not see that as a, as a contradictory at all. In fact, that's exactly my job. And I'm a journalist. I'm not looking for friends. I'm not looking to be positive or negative. I am looking for the truth. It's that um, first rough draft of history. It's the best version of the truth that you can find. Uh, that snapshot of that day and the news, and then you do it again the next day and the next day. And, you know, it's not fake news. It's not alternative facts. It's news. Uh, it's real. And I'm very honored to be a journalist, uh, especially in these times, but always, and especially like at the Olympic Games, that's where I can really feel it. But even the World Series this past year, 2019, Washington Nationals, obviously being in Washington, I'm glad they were in it. I'm a, When I've got a credential on, I'm not cheering for them. I'm not a fan. I'm a journalist. But that was really fun to be at Nats Park and watching that World Series and covering it. Uh, and of course, Houston won all three games in Washington. Washington won all four games in Houston and the Washington yeah. World Series. And uh, but yeah, so those kinds of moments where you can be, you know, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful. It's the best of us. It's the it's the best of our country. It's the best of our world. Olympics, 
wonderful sports events like a World Series, you know, improbable things that happen, even high school sports, whether it's a loved one or just watching kids competing and loving it. I think, you know, those are the great things you see and you find. And, and, and that's certainly what has always attracted me to sports journalism. Well, I'm glad that you're able to see the big picture, the good and the bad, and sometimes the ugly. And your point about journalism can't be emphasized enough. I had Ralph Beglater on, who used to be a global correspondent for CNN, and he really made that distinction between opinion-based news and journalism. And, and that's what you're talking about. You got to cover it in depth and give people the true story of what's going on, not necessarily looking to please people. You've got to tell a story, and that's what you do. Let's look at COVID right now. And again, you could talk about this for, for a half an hour, which we don't have for this question, but it's kind of obvious in some ways how COVID is affecting sports. Perhaps you could focus a little bit more on the less obvious ways that you're seeing that COVID has an impact on either participatory sports, which you were involved in six sports, and or in spectatorship and in pro sports. What are some of those more subtle things that are happening that you're seeing? The one that comes to mind, Jeff, more than any other is how it's really revealing what is important and uh, some of our leaders, what they are, uh, the decisions they're making. And I think of Big Ten football. I am absolutely shocked that the Big Ten reneged on its original decision, flip-flopped on its original decision, and decided to play football in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. Full disclosure, I am a Northwestern grad, undergrad and master's. I am on our board of trustees at Northwestern. It is a 64-person board. So I had absolutely nothing to do with Northwestern's decision to want to play football or not want to play football a month earlier. I have no role, whatever, um, in, to play in any of that. Uh, and um, and that that is, of course, very important because as a journalist, I, I would never have that role. What I do at Northwestern is a lot of mentoring, obviously journalism-related work, and uh, being on the board is, you know, I think I fulfill that role, but I, I don't know people's salaries. I don't know their football coaches' salaries or anything like that. I, I'm, not, I'm not involved in that. So clearly I was not involved in the sports decision-making or the university decision-making or the Big Ten decision-making. So I felt very comfortable writing columns about this. But I, I think it really reveals, I mean, all these people for years, Big Ten, Pac-12, which then followed the Big Ten like lockstep right back into playing football, the antithesis of, of social distancing in the middle of a pandemic and the young lives that they are entrusted with. And of course, also the old lives, you know, the janitors and the stadium workers and the when you're opening these football stadiums and the people, the assistants and the people cleaning up after uh, the football team every day and going home and what's going to happen. We'll see. I hope nothing bad happens, but boy, what a roll of the dice by these university presidents. And I really thought that they would do the right thing. And now we're seeing in the decision-making, Jeff, that football is everything to them. And my lead of my column that I wrote a few weeks ago, when the Big Ten flip-flopped and did not have the courage of its convictions, the Big Ten presidents, and uh, caved under the pressure of whiny football coaches at Ohio State and Nebraska and wherever else, Iowa, that I think what we have seen is that these people who say we can't pay athletes, we can't pay football players, well, they don't have a leg to stand on anymore because they have just made the football players different from the students. And that was something the Big Ten always said, we're better than this. We're not the SEC. We're not the ACC with Clemson, you know. We're not uh, some of these other, the Big 12. We're not that. We're, you know, we have all these research institutions and we have these great schools. Northwestern's in the top 10 of U.S. News and World Report. Very proud of that, of course. Great public universities as well. Northwestern's private. And then they do this 
And meanwhile, like at Northwestern, the freshmen and sophomores can't even be on campus right now. They're not allowed closed. You have outbreaks at Michigan State, outbreaks in Wisconsin, and yet you're going to play football. It's just unconscionable. And so certainly learned a lot about the priorities of, of schools in the Big Ten and uh, the Pac-12, because then they followed right along, as I said, in lockstep when they didn't have to. So it was really FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Yeah. And Notre Dame, right? Notre Dame was playing football. And so what? Why aren't we playing football? And then the ultimate irony, after they decide to play football, then Notre Dame can't play the game because of, of a COVID concern. So, uh, you know, it's just the lack of leadership here is astounding. I probably shouldn't be surprised about that, but that's certainly been revealing. And the fact that I understand the money and I, anyone listening, I get it. If we're talking 30, 40, $50 million football, huge money. And you want to try to keep, you want to try to keep your athletic department afloat. I get all that. Of course I do. But you sell your soul on this gamble during a pandemic. Uh, wow. And as I said, boy, if let's hope no one dies. Let's hope no one gets sick. And I'm not, oh, 18 to 22 years. I'm not, of course, football players, but I'm not even, I'm talking about all the support staff and the people who might be in their 50s or 60s or 70s who are working and are now they being subjected to something they would not have been if the Big Ten presidents had uh, stuck to their original decision, which was the right decision, like the Ivy League and like so many uh, some others had done and have stuck with. So anyway, I think that's been very revealing. And I think also people have found they can live without sports. I mean, I find working out more, being outside more, hiking, biking, kayaking, personally, it's a delight. And I know a lot of people who are not sitting home watching games the way they might have in the past. We'll see TV ratings right now are down. A lot of it's because there's so much on TV right now. Everything's jammed into this WNBA finals, NBA finals, you know, Major League Baseball playoffs, football, college and pro and other things as well. You know, Preakness, odd times for all these. Uh, The Masters will be, of course, in November, just uh, as a tradition like no other. Um, Not April, not April, but November. Exactly. So we'll see. But uh, are people wondering that they can live without this? There's a lot. There's a lot we're learning about ourselves. And obviously some of it really good in terms of uh, all these athletes who went to college, grew up uh, and then med school, grew up to be doctors and saving people's lives, fighting for PPE early on in the uh, pandemic uh, in New York and other places. I've been honored to write some of those stories. A lot of these youth sports programs trying to keep kids engaged in the middle of a pandemic and make sure they got meals and they were checking in on families who might not be able to do that. And so all those things, again, I think some very uplifting stories of people helping people in the midst of these difficult times that it did involve sports. Yes. I particularly relate to what you were saying about people doing a little or a lot without sports getting out and doing stuff where it's safe. Years ago, I couldn't miss a minute of an Eagles game. I couldn't miss a minute. I went to many, many games, including 1960, when they won the championship. But I haven't watched a minute of pro football. And I don't know, is this me or is it a trend? And you're talking about this too. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's not just me. Maybe it's just what's been going on, which leads me into my other question, And that is going forward, looking forward over the next five years or so. Of course, we didn't know we were going to have COVID. So this is mere speculation. Who knows? In what ways, Christine, do you think the sporting world is going to change or will change? And how much of those changes have been driven by this COVID-19 thing? In other words, if you and I were talking a year ago, maybe your answer would have been a lot different for the next five years. Yeah, well, I think we're going to have fewer field hockey players and more epidemiologists. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think we're going to have um, these young people. This may be our next greatest generation. Um, these young people who, let's say, are 14 to 20 right now, um, and maybe even maybe even 12 to 25. I mean, whatever. But that gen- what no. they're going through is something that we've never gone through as a generation. I mean, obviously Vietnam for people. I, I was too young to really get the full brunt of what how terrible Vietnam was. I mean, I certainly know, but I didn't live it the way that people 10 years maybe older than me did. You know, certainly the Depression era comes to mind in terms of difficulties, living without having to make sacrifices. Even suburban kids who are well off are making sacrifices they never would have dreamed and their parents never would have dreamed just a, a year ago. And fighting through it and learning to deal with it and adversity in difficult times. And then those, of course, who don't have much or those who are, you know, in underserved neighborhoods and then having to deal with the you know, lost jobs and, and, and the issues with food, putting food on the table. So many things that are just so heartbreaking and, and difficult. So how that's going to play out over with those people. And that's just not even a sports conversation. That's a cultural conversation. That's a cultural conversation. Exactly. But I think we're going to see a lot of that. And again, people wanting to help out these young people in their, you know, in, in middle school, high school and college, let's say, and maybe even grade schoolers, or, you know, kids who are a few, you know, obviously on the older grade school side, maybe that all the, the things that they're going to do in their lives and, um, and sports is important, of course, but helping people. And so I think we may see some of that. And those that will be through the rest of their lives, how they move through their lives, the way that the greatest generation, the way that uh, our parents uh, and my parents were kind of a little young on, for that major World War II thing, but, but same thing, that same feeling of people born in the 20s in this country. And so I think we're going to see some of that. I have a question about whether people are just going to be okay with the exorbitant salaries that everyone makes in pro sports. In the wake of the fact that we're the frontline workers, the the people, the first responders, the teachers, the people, even people in grocery stores who have been there for us, uh, police officers who've been there for us, and of course all of the issues involving uh, you know Black Lives Matter. Of course, they're obviously bad police officers, terrible things have happened, but also the very good things about the safety and security of this country as it's so important to deal and and to support Black Lives Matter and and all those other issues. But all of these things. I mean, do we then get to the point where we're saying, why are these athletes making all this money when school teachers aren't or when uh, healthcare workers aren't or, you know, those that are so important to us? We've, we may have a, will we have a, a change in our priorities in terms of sports and will sports then bear the brunt of some of that? And people say, hey, no, 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 I'm, I'm sick of this. I don't want to pay this kind of money. And also the economic issues, speaking of paying for tickets and money. I mean, there's a lot of people who might have taken a kid, their kid's mom and dad taking their kids to a baseball game or two or a, or something who just might not have the resources right now and for the next few years, if in fact they've lost jobs or if they've had to take pay cuts or furloughed, whatever. So there are so many ramifications because the supporters of, of sports, the fans, the spectators of sports are also, of course, the, the living, breathing human beings who are dealing with this pandemic. And then, of course, the tragic and so sad loss of life, 210,000 blood counting in the United States, so many, I think over a million around the world and, you know, how that impacts people and and our priorities. So I think there's a lot that will shake out. I wish I had some specific things I could tell you, but uh, I'm wondering if we're going to think, look at sports in a different light and maybe, and not as serious and maybe have my more priorities that are, especially if there are economic concerns for the family, they have to work another job or do things, or a child can't go away to college, but has to stay home now. Um, then is sports that important to this family anymore? You know, our pro sports, or is the escape, Jeff, 
something you want so desperately that of course you want to still turn on the game. You might not go and buy tickets anymore, but you'll still pay the cable bill to have uh, or, or whatever streaming service to be able to watch sports and have that escape from the from the, a tougher life, you know, over these next few years, uh, as we've seen over the last, uh, what, eight, nine months or so. Everything you said was dead on, but that last point was so important because pre-COVID certainly too, there's a vicarious thrill that a lot of people get who lead mundane lives when they watch a game and they root for a team that they have passion for. I remember, and I don't want to dwell on this, we don't have time, but I'll just tell you, when the Eagles won the NFL championship in 1960, Vince Lombardi was the coach of the Packers. My uncle took me across the field at the end of the game, Franklin Field, that's where they used to play. I felt like I was on the Eagles. I was probably four feet tall, but I felt like I was about six feet tall. And there's that escape factor that you talk about, that vicarious thrill. You don't get that sometimes in your regular life. So that might keep people still involved with this. The last thing I want to ask you before we speak to you about how people can get a hold of you is this. And I'm going to use my daughter as an example. My daughter went to the University of Maryland, and she majored in journalism. She minored in Italian. But by the time she was getting out of school, Christine, as you alluded to earlier, there really wasn't a lot of opportunity for journalists. So she ended up getting a master's in speech pathology. So my question for you is, if you think about sports and sports journalism, and we may be talking here more sports journalism than sports. Going forward, you got, as you alluded to, we have millions of people out of work. We have these young students that you're helping and others you're not able to help for obvious reasons who are trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life, my career. You have midlife career people saying, I'm going to get out of what I'm doing. I want to do something else. Are there any opportunities that you might suggest that these people get involved with either as a college major or second career or change a career or starting a career that relate to the big arena that you sit in? Certainly, uh, journalism is, is fascinating. And I encourage anyone uh, who loves writing, uh, loves current events, loves the news, which that's the other thing. We had radio on all the time, news, all news radio. We watched the news every night, NBC Nightly News, it turned out. Excellent. Chancellor's News, but uh, you know, we were uh, my mom and dad, and all of us, my my three siblings and I, just cared so much about news. We were very much current events people. The news business is changing. The journalism world is changing. Jobs are there, but we also know there's a lot of cuts and a lot of uh, difficult times as we are basically switching from a, a nation that reads the newspaper to who reads that reads their news on their phones, on their devices and um, how that manifests itself in terms of jobs. But people always want information. And so if you love love reading, love writing, love the news, then you, people will always be needed to disseminate that information and write stories and write columns and cover the news and break news, et cetera, uh, sports and, and politics and everything in between. So um, I encourage people to do that. I think it's also a great way to learn how to write, even if you're going to end up going to law school or do any other number of things to be a, a journalism student. Uh, now, you can be a journalist without 
going to journalism school. Obviously, I'm very partial to Northwestern. Obviously, there are great journalism schools in the country. Medill School, school of Journalism is my favorite. That's why I went there and I'm still very involved as a professor of practice at Medill. But the bottom line is there are a lot of great places you can go. You also don't have to study journalism to become a journalist. And in fact, people like Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward were not journalism majors. Uh, I think maybe Bob, Carl may have did, at Maryland a little bit, but I think he dropped out. So bottom line, you know, it's it's life experience. It's those, as I mentioned earlier, it's internships. It's getting that practical experience so you are prepared to cover news and and have that moxie, that street smarts, that common sense to be able to, uh, which there's nothing common about common sense, my father told me, um, right. to be able to, you know, to report. Um, so you can do that. And, but I think journalism schools are a great way to do it. But you also then have a leg up in terms of finding out about internships because every year those schools would have interns at, at certain places. But I do think um, that's a way to do it. I also think, again, looking ahead, what are is our country going to need more of? When I said we'll have more epidemiologists than, and fewer uh, field hockey players, I mean, I'm not picking on field hockey, it was one of my sports, uh, uh, fewer football players, you know, fewer um, volleyball players, whatever it might be. I think we're going to have people caring about health and and in the environment. My God, you know, so the global warming. I mean, that's an issue uh, for us now, and it's certainly an issue for people who are younger who are going to be around for the next, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And what how's our world going to look? So, I would say look at what's important to you. Look at what you care about. But journalism school, writing, learning how to write accurately and and wonderfully, and and not just type up little. Um, you know, what we all do, um, fun little text messages or whatever, but actually reading and writing and being aware of our history and knowledge and and um, asking questions and being inquisitive, all these things will make you a better person for whatever, whatever career you're looking for uh, as you start to examine what is needed in this country and where we're headed over the next, you know, what, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Yes, I think that's great advice. I like the notion about how important writing is no matter what. I like the idea of internships. I totally agree with you. People who, these young students who get the internships will have a leg up. And the other thing about what you said is the value of being able to be a good conversationalist. And being a good conversationalist really has a lot to do with knowing how to ask questions and knowing what to ask. In, mm -hmm. in your profession, that's what you have to do. So this has been great. The last thing I would like you to speak to is you've written seven books. That's seven times as many as I've written. Seven books. You uh, obviously have your nationally syndicated column. You have your commentator role that you do on several stations. You offer speaking engagements. So what is the best way, Christine, for those who are interested to find out what you're up to and perhaps book you for a speech, buy your book, you know, whatever. Well, thanks, Jeff. All of that is wonderful. If people are interested. Um, my website is just my name, christinebrennan.com, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, Brennan, B-R-E-N-N-A-N, altogether, christinebrennan.com. I usually put most things I'm working on, um, not, not all my TV appearances or anything, but uh, you know, try to occasionally at least put things on Twitter, uh, as well as all my links for links for columns and things like that. And that's at C Brennan Sports, first initial, last name Sports, at C Brennan Sports. Someone had taken Christine Brennan. 
I feel for her every single day. I have no idea why (laughs) she must get it because people, a lot of people really do not like what I do, which is great. That's fine. Um, If they don't like it, if they like it, especially, you know, like college football fans. And that's, that's again, bring it on. That's great. But uh, yes, I think if they find these other Christine Brennan's out there, uh, wow, I, 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 I can only imagine what they're seeing. But at C. Brennan Sports on Twitter, uh, that's also Facebook. And I, I put columns there as well, at C. Brennan Sports and Instagram as well, at C. Brennan Sports. So that's, and you can email me at my website at christinebrennan.com and then just go up there to where you see where it says contact and then send, a, send me an email and I get that within a few minutes. So thank you very much. And I'm always happy to hear from people, especially students, especially classes or students. And yes, I do a lot of speaking, although I haven't, I did a lot early in the year and uh, haven't since March, except a few Zoom speeches. But uh, again, people can find me there at christinebrennan.com. That's great. And I want to commend you, in addition to all the achievements and the successes, I want to commend you for the efforts that you have made to reach out to young people, because you have a lot to offer, as do a lot of older people who have experience, to offer to younger people. And we need to do that. We need to give back. We need to give back. Oh, that's all I do. The Association for Women in Sports Media, which any young woman should look at. I look at our website, look at our Twitter feed, young men too, especially if you're looking for jobs. AWSM, Association for Women in Sports Media. I was the first president. I started our scholarship internship program. I fund two of those scholarship internships every year. Um, check all that out if you're if you're a young student. Uh, for women, uh, only women for the scholarship internship program, but men join. We are not exclusive. Love to have men as well as women, especially young, young uh, budding journalists in college or, or even in high school, if you'd like. But check out the website. And again, I'm very proud of all the work we have done to encourage women uh, and young men, but especially young women, uh, to get into sports media. That's I consider that, that the scholarship program one of uh, the most important things uh, I've, I've done. I've been honored to to be a part of that and to support it and start it. And as I said, I, I, when people say, what are, what are your great achievements? Well, certainly that's right up there. And I, I'm very fortunate to have been able to do that and continue to help. So yes, uh, anything, anytime, for sure. Um, but thank you so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That, that's such a giving thing. Well, thank you again so much, Christine. I really appreciate appreciate your taking the time. I know you've got a frenetic life and Mm -hmm. it's wonderful to have you. Oh, Jeff, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's jeff dash Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F dot com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.